Welcome to the Barefoot Lunch Podcast, helping you lead a more creative and vital life. I'm your host, David Sweet. Before we get started, just wanted to make a note that uh, the internet connection for our interview with Craig and I was a bit sketchy, so I've had to do quite a bit of editing, and so please uh, be patient as you go through and listen. I wanted to go back through and uh, reconduct the interview with Craig, but in October of 2020, uh, Craig passed away with a stroke in Denver, Colorado. He will be missed. He's uh, been very influential in many lives, and as you'll hear in the interview, he's uh, quite an exceptional, thoughtful, and uh, interesting individual. And he'll be missed, and we're lucky that we could have him here uh, in our interview today. Welcome to Barefoot Lunch. Uh, today I have a very special guest, Mr. Craig Bowman. He's uh, one of my greatest mentors. He taught me to love poetry by memorizing Shakespeare, T.S. Eliot, and the Bible in public school. We had to stand when adults entered the room. We had to diagram sentences. Some days he would play Led Zeppelin, uh, Stairway to Heaven, and the Moody Blues, Nights and White Sentin, because it was beautiful poetry. He told us we were important and loved us. He wrote his phone number on the chalkboard on the first day and told us we could call him if we needed. He also was an accomplished writer and an accomplished organist. And I was lucky enough to have him play at my wedding. And I still don't forgive him for giving me uh, the essay, A Territorial Imperative of Human Beings, when I was in seventh grade. Whatever the hell that was. (laughs) And last but not least, you taught me that a 95% is an A, not a 90%. And that I got a 94.8, and you still gave me a B. So welcome, <laughs> welcome, Craig Bowman. I'm glad to be here with you, um, uh, Dr. David Sweet. And I'm very proud of you because you have surpassed the teacher. I don't know about that. Well, well why don't we tell us... Uh, why don't we, we always start with you and your, your background. You have such an interesting history, um, growing up as, uh, as an orphan, raised by nuns, um, with uh, a lot of great studies. Walk us through, through that, uh, through your history. Um, uh, Dave, David, I was, I was um, the child of a black woman who got pregnant with me in in July of 1946. She was a maid at the time. And I was born in the Florence Home for Colored Girls in April of 1947. And in those days, uh, unlike yours at Alameda Junior High School, kids didn't, you know, girls didn't, um, come back to school and show off their babies in those days. You know, that was a great disgrace. You left town, 
you went into exile, and then you came back after you had the baby and gave the baby up for adoption. And so I was I was given up, I was put because my mother was a Catholic. Um, I was given up to Catholic charities and Catholic charities until 1968 was my official guardian. And so I went to St. Clair's Orphanage in grade school. And then I went to, and many of your, many of your readers and listeners will, will recognize this school. I went to Mullen High School in Denver. And that was the orphanage you went to when you went to high school. And um, the orphanage system was very insulated. I won't say much more beyond that. It was very insulated from the 1950s. What kind of um, you know, impact do you think that that had on your life being raised? Uh, Dave, it was huge. It was very much the age of we're way, we're past the 1920s when the Ku Klux Klan dominated in Colorado. We're past the 1930s, the Great Depression. We're past the World War II. And so the parents in the 1950s, basically the mantra was, I want my kid, I, I want my children to have all the things. Remember those three words, all the things we didn't have. And so I was born in 1947, and our German sisters had gone through all the tortures and the persecutions of the cookies. And so when I was growing up in the 1950s, they were still in the 1930s, the Depression. And so I didn't get Dr. Spock. I didn't get any of the expertise of raising our kids not to have their feelings hurt. Uh, I literally grew up on all fours in front of a toilet bowl drinking toilet water. And that's, that is not a metaphor. Mm. And I can remember my, my, the, 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 in May before I graduated from the orphanage in 1961, I went to the sister and asked for a penny so I could buy two more <laughs> pencils. And that sister looked me in the eye and said, what are you doing? With all that money, wow! That's another. That's another penny. That's the third penny you've spent this school year. What are you doing with all that money? So I grew up in that wonderfully insulated world where you remember the suffering. I know that uh, you brought that discipline into the classroom uh, for us when we were in. Junior high, I mean, because you made us stand up, right? It's it, when an adult entered the classroom. You said, I mean, you, you did that at the orphanage. There's no reason you shouldn't respect an adult. And, uh, 
I just thought that was uh, a great life lesson. So then after you graduated Mullen, you went off to to college, right? Yes, I did. And see, um, Dave, that was one of the things that was, by the time I I saw you at Alameda Junior High School, I was shocked because I went through an orphanage system, grade school, high school. And it was just like um, everybody going on to college. That was, that was not a big deal. I graduated in 1965. See, after going through the grade school, and I had the mindset of the 1930s, and then I get to the high school orphanage. Mullen was an orphanage in those days. Hmm. And it's just assumed everybody in this school is going to go to college. And I get to Alameda Junior High School, where I met you, thinking is only certain people are going to go to college. And, and, and in the public schools in those days, the educational system is not, is not prepared for everybody just assuming they're going on to college. See, historically, college is not available for most people. It's not available until 1945 mm. when Franklin D. Roosevelt and, mm. then, and then Harry Truman uh, do the GI Bill. And a whole lot of people who never expected to go on to college, farmers, uh, blue-collar workers, poor people who'd gone through the, gone through the Army, went to the war, Nobody thought of going on to college. But in my culture, college was assumed. It was kind of a rite of passage. It wasn't, it wasn't assumed. So a whole lot of people who did not um, think they were going on to college got a whole lot of money to go on to college. Were you a good student? No. I was not a good student, not in high school, not in college. Uh, <laughs> I grew. You can tell me now. <laughs> I didn't want to tell you then. Shoot, so, <laughs> you know I'm living in the closet in those days. Um, I graduated from cop from from high school with a one point seven five grade point average. Yeah. And then I flunked out of the University of Denver two years later. Wow. But see, it was a completely, you have to understand this, it was a completely different uh, perspective. Everybody in my high school went on to college. 1.0, 1.75, 3.0, you're going to college. Mm. And then when you went on to college, there was no such thing as college debt. The University of Denver in 1965, the tuition was $2,000 a year. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There are places of education instead of business, right? What, what shifted for you then? What, I mean, when did that, I mean, you're, in my mind, you're a Renaissance man. You're a writer and educator. And 
leader in the, the your 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 community. What uh, what shifted? Oh, actually, actually, Dave, the the shift was going on the whole time. It was when by the time I got to Elmina Junior High School, when I met you. The shift, if you want to call it that, took place then. I got to Alameda Junior High School in 1980. What year did I have you in my classroom? Oh, uh, um, 81. 81. So that's the beginning of my second year. You were a newbie. I was a newbie. Oh, I was. A, oh, oh, I was a newbie to a racist education system. Remember the tracking system? The lowest tracking in my Catholic school was college prep. That's the lowest track you could get into. Mm. I don't care how dumb you are. You're going to college. And so one of my one of my um, one of my teachers in High school said, I don't care if you are a poor little Negro orphan, you will take Latin. (laughs) (laughs) Middle of the, you know, it's just the beginning of the civil rights movement. What's a Negro doing? Take in nomine patris et filius et spiritus sanctus. (laughs) What what the hell are you talking about, Negro? And so it's just the expectation was, and then I got into public education. And when I got to Alameda in junior high, do you remember my first year, the minute I, I, my first day of school, I stood up and said, okay, we're going to do parts of speech and literature and Mm -hmm. sentence, yada, yada, just usual stuff. She pulled four or five kids out of my classroom. First day, second day, third, uh, third, third day, uh, fourth day. I, and I, I confronted her and I said, why are you doing that? Mm. And I'll tell you, Dr. David Sweet. She looked in my face, in my black face, tears in her eyes. And she said, these kids are poor. They can't. Looked into my black face and said, they're poor. They can't. Mm. And a year later, I started writing columns for the Rocky Mountain News. I said, if you ever do that again, I'm going to make you famous. She never did it again. You remember our principal? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not, I'll not go on record. To, um, that was Mr. Cox, right? Orlin Cox. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you what, I've changed my mind about him over the years. He's long since dead, of course. Um, he was the first and the only principal who really, and he tried his best to let the other teachers know what I was doing. Mm. They were not going to educate 
they weren't going to educate anybody who was poor. I remember you, you always said that it was it was very disheartening because they they there was a quota system for hiring, and it used to make you so irritated. It's like I want to be I'm qualified, and I'm educated. I got a master's degree. I I belong here. I earned it. I'm not a, a quota. I earned it. Yeah. And, and that stuck, stuck with me as well. That it doesn't matter where you come from or whether you're, you're poor or, or not. That, there was that democratic idea that you had an ability. Uh, I think you, you always had that, that God-given ability, that talent. And you need to go and find out what those talents are, and you better use them. You don't have a yeah. choice of that. That's why you're put here on this planet. You use those talents. And that was a very strong message that, uh, that several of my mentors gave me. And you over and over gave that uh, to me and to others in the classroom. It didn't matter whether uh, you were Cliff, who, who was poor, and he was a troublemaker, and go out and get stabbed. He still had to come yeah. in, and, and you still had to get up and, and read T.S. Eliot and diagram yeah. a sentence and write a paper. It didn't yeah. matter whether you were Hispanic or white or black. That's the way it was. It was amazing. Um, and that's, Doctor, that's what basically made me angry enough to start writing. Hmm. Not only did I want to exemplify what I was teaching, you know, write, write effective writing. Mm. But I wanted to expose what I saw <coughs> as systematic racism in the system. Once you, ha- once you walk in with brown skin or black skin or with free and reduced lunch, um, we don't expect anything of you. Mm. And I said, there's, I was, I was angry because I got a better education than they were offering to you. And I got that better education in an orphanage system with a bunch of people who didn't have degrees. And I could mention a whole lot of the names and you'll remember everyone of the teachers who just said, no, uh, this is in a poor, this school is in a poor neighborhood and you will stay in a particular caste system. Mm. And don't you dare ever try and get out. How have you seen the education system change since that time? Um, Basically, Dave, it has not. It has not changed. Um, the, how do I, it just, we, we Americans based in the, in the, in the education, educational system I saw in 33 years, we, the, 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 the American public educational system, the system, not individuals, the system is racist. It is built to exclude people of poverty and people of color. You are 
You're familiar with the uh, Indian caste system. You were born into that caste. That's where you'll stay. Mm. And what did people at Alameda Junior High School, you remember Miss Gilbert, remember her? She called my orphanage educational system, get this, in 1980, 81, she called it elitist. Now put those two words together, orphan elitist. Now what's wrong with that, with that phrase? We don't, we, the problem with our system is that we don't believe in ourselves. Mm. What do you mean by that? The, um, when we, when we use the term elitist and I, uh, not elitist, um, uh, racist, we, in all the years that I've been, that I got out of the orphanage, the thing that most frustrated me was how, People threw around the word racist, like can't you, know, you give out candy to that little white boy who who shouts "How Hitler," and you 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 know you call him a racist and you give him a piece of candy. No, Hitler's racism was one of arrogance. We are the superior race. The racism I saw in the American public. The black people, the poor people, the Hispanic people, they're taking over. We're scared of that. And so I remember uh, mentioning uh, the, uh, um, oh, what do you, the, the demographic shift that was taking place ever since I first started in education. The minorities would one day be the majority especially the Hispanics, they would be the majority. And that's their, so it's not Hitler. It, oh, they call themselves, they're wannabe Nazis. No, they really don't believe. I, I mean, look at, look at, look at the, the shouts. You will not replace us. Well, there's a fear. There's a fear that somebody else is going to replace. No, 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 no. Hitler's Nazis really believed that they were going to dominate the world. So they killed off 6 million Jews because they were inferior. And then Hitler at the end chickens out and kills himself. No, 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 no. By the time I get, by the time I get to Alameda Junior High School, those teachers are really scared of this Negro fear. They're scared. They're not arrogant. They're not going to overwhelm me. They're not going to fire me. They are scared. And then I, then I get angry and I get, I get angry and I say, uh, Mr. Cox, I'm going to, I'm going to get back. And I don't have a gun. I don't even have a good butter knife. And then I say, I'm going to pick up my pen. I'm going to start writing. Oh, Lord. I mean, those, t those people turned ashen. The Negro picks up the pen. Oh, Lord, they went nuts. Mm. Does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. It's a different kind of racism. Our American racism today, uh, even in Europe, 
It's not arrogance. It is not arrogance. It is Poland, for instance, just reelected the neoconservative mm. today. That is not because he believes Poland is is superior race. No, a lot of my friends in the orphanage came from Poland. Eastern Europe communism. No, 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 no. They're going back. They're going back to fear. They're scared of the Muslims. They're scared of the Africans. They're scared of the Egyptians. They're scared of the South, uh, the, the, the Africans in South Africa. No, Nelson Mandela is far more scary than Hitler to them. Seems like there was a, there is a big shift and it was, gosh, it was before the eighties, but there is just that we want to say it was after the bombing of the twin towers, but it was long before that, that there was just a fear running throughout the, throughout the U S yeah, that, uh, yeah, the, the minorities were going to come and take over the world. Yeah. And, uh, well, see, but see, it's not just America. It's the, it's the political system. It's, it's the educational system. There was, and as a matter of fact, one of the things I noticed when I graduated from high school, Catholic high school, in 1965, I wasn't shocked by the number of guys in my class or in my generation who were gay. I wasn't surprised by the number of people who hated black people. I wasn't surprised by the number of people who hated Hispanic people. I wasn't surprised by the number of guys who never got married or who got married and divorced and broken families. I wasn't surprised by any of that. I was surprised by the number of good-looking, smart, talented white people who literally, Dave, I'm telling you, literally did not believe in themselves. I'm the only black guy in my class at Mullen. And they've got a picture of me. You know, they, they take, you know, not the yearbook picture, but there there's a picture of me in my cap and gown and I'm walking down the aisle. And the people who wrote the yearbook or who edited the yearbook put the word pomposity under my picture. Only black guy in the class and I'm pompous. As I talk with my classmates over the years, literally white, good-looking People, talented people. The 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 valedictorian, the salutatorian, they were white guys, and they called this black man pompous. Mm -hmm. We're our generation was not probably what your mom would have called humble self-confidence. There's no such thing. In my Catholic school, 
I'm humble and self-confident. I'm self-confident and I'm humble because the gifts I have in athletics, in writing, in, in academics, I don't realize that those are gifts from God. And so I'm not being pompous. I'm doing what God meant me to do with my gifts. Hey, remember my friend Johann Sebastian Bach? Yeah. What did he write at the end of every one of his compositions? By the way, his school board at Thomas Kirche uh, in Leipzig, his school board called him a mediocrity. Mm. And at the bottom of all his compositions, he wrote three Latin words, soli deo gloria, to God alone, the glory. Mm. I graduated in 1965 from a Catholic school, and our white people did not have that humble self-confidence. We just didn't have it. Mm. My generation, the baby boomers, didn't have it. So you've got, what do you spend, what do you spend the rest of your life doing? You've got to put everybody else down. And who's the most visible, uh, the most easy example of somebody you could put down? The Negro. The Mexican. And so you've felt better. Mm. I'm the expert. What's the first temptation? I am God. My white skin makes me God. And in the end, whose kids are killing themselves? Even while you were at Alameda Junior High School. uh, Three deaths that one year. Oh, I forgot that. That was a a tough year. Oh, I forgot that. Oh, my. Yeah. And of course, you know, Columbine happened yep. in our school district. And my one of my favorite teach one of my favorite students ever died at Columbine. What do you think in this day and age? And, and uh, there's a lot of angry people and a lot of frustration. And how can we we make this better? Or can we? I would say even way back in the early 80s, uh, we should have paid more attention to horny young people like you. Uh, that wasn't me. <laughs> no, 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 David. No, no, no. I've got passage is in the book. Would you like me to get out and read them to you? <laughs> well, you're no. teaching us Shakespeare. I didn't know there was uh, so much fun. <laughs> Sexual fun. Groundlings humor. Mm. Um, I think one of the things, and I, that's not entirely funny. One of the things that even back in the day at Alameda Junior, we could have paid attention to was, I don't know if you saw it any more than I did. Um, Kids were crossing all the barriers, Mm. all the lines, all the discriminatory lines, and they were falling in love with each other. We saw a Vietnamese kid in the hallway and tell, because his his homies were all Mexican kids. I said, hey, name is Nguyen. Your name is Nguyen. It's not Gonzalez. Because his, his homies were all... I remember going up to the library one day with a classroom full of kids. And they were, they, you know, they just sat with their friends, whoever. 
And there was one bunch of kids who were just laughing and giggling, weren't paying attention to the assignment I gave them. What are you laughing at? Turns out the Vietnamese kids were teaching the Mexicans how to cuss out adults. To the Vietnamese guy, I said, I went up, and then he called me some dirty name in Spanish. Turned to the turned to the, to the Hispanic kid, said, you stop, you stop doing that. And then he, it's perfect Vietnamese. He cusses me out. And the thing that I say that's, that our kids can teach us and are teaching us, but we won't listen, mm. is that they're falling in love with each other. The Hispanics, the Vietnamese, the whites, the Puerto Ricans. I mean, you think West Side Story was uh, uh, revolutionary. You ought to see it now at my church. I mean, I mean, here's a Hispanic couple, Gonzalez or Rodarte, and the godparents are Vietnamese and Chinese and black. And I mean, I mean, you can't get a single race for a baptism anymore. Mm. The kids are teaching us, but we're, we're, I think people my age and older, very, very scared. The racism now is based on fear. And when they saw you and your family um, falling in love with each other, when they saw all the other kids falling in, in love with me as a teacher, inviting me into their families, they're real scared. Mm. They're not ready for this new scenario, this new blueprint. The, the public schools that I went into in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s through 2006, they're not ready for, they're not ready for a black kid to fall in love with a white girl. They're not ready for a bunch of white kids to fall in love with a black teacher. That, that, that child, that student of mine who died over at Columbine, um, along with other teachers in my school, we went to his memorial service. Uh, he had been homeschooled until he came to my school in seventh grade. And um, he adjusted, you know, a brick and mortar school and nice looking kid, very smart, real nice kid. But when I went to the memorial service, um, his mother went hysterical when she saw me. She jumped up and down and went hysterical and screamed, Mr. Bowman, Mr. Bowman, Mr. Bowman, Mr. Bowman. She just went crazy. Uh, and our school district didn't get it. He's a white kid. I'm a black mom and dad and student didn't see white and black. They saw teacher, teacher, teacher. Mm. Here's something I can trust in a system I'm not familiar with. She comes from, they come from homeschooling. First time he's socializing in a regular school. And that's all she saw. 
I'm a safe person to trust. We, we, Dave, I, I, we don't get it. We're very, very scared of each other. Mm. A couple more questions. I mean, one of the things I know, boy, since you were a teacher, you've always used the, the term um, teacher-servant. And now I know you, you sign your mails with them. Uh, yeah. What, what's that mean to you? What's that phrase mean to you? Dave, I didn't, I didn't start using that until a couple of two, three years into my teaching career. And as, as you know, I'm a serious Catholic. That doesn't mean serious means I'm serious about my faith. As serious as your mom and dad were about their faith, they took it very seriously. Um, and to me, it wasn't just a job. It's a call. Mm. Grew up in an orphanage. Uh, I don't care what Mari Povich says on on his show. I'm not anybody's dad, especially that Chinese kid. I'm not his dad. The eyes don't match. So I'm nobody's daddy. But it's a call. It's a very sacred call. Like Diedrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls you, he calls you to your death. You literally are going to give up your life for this call. So marriage is a vocation. Teaching is a vocation. It's a sacred call from God. And no matter all the sins I've committed, no matter all the faults I have, no matter all the problems I have, um, I, um, God calls me. Uh, I just got a new, um, I, I, I had a copy of Caravaggio's uh, painting of the calling of St. Matthew. And it's this wonderful painting, Caravaggio, 17th century, 16th century, 17th century. And he's calling St. Matthew the tax collector. And not to use a very bad pun, but in Caravaggio's painting, Jesus is giving St. Matthew the finger. No, he's pointing the finger at St. Matthew. St. Matthew is in the middle of sin. He's, He's... doing all the scamming of the Roman taxes, getting all of it for himself, and there's Jesus all of a sudden giving him the finger, pointing the finger at him, and St. Matthew looks up and says, wow, who, me? I'm not doing anything bad. (laughs) And that's me. Mm. That's great. And the other, the other day, I'm doing the reading from, from uh, uh, a reading from the first book of the prophet Isaiah. And it's God calling Isaiah. And, and Isaiah sees the, the throne of God and, and the trumpets and the seraphim. And Isaiah says, woe is me. 
I am a man of unclean lips, living with the people of unclean lips. And Seraphim takes the, the hot tongue and puts it on his tongue. You are no longer a man of unclean lips. Then the voice of God says, whom shall I send? Here I am, Lord. Send me. That's the same. That's the sense that I get of not just a teaching job anymore. He's saying, I'm sending you. And here's the whole list of kids and families that you're going to touch. It's not a job. It's not certainly not a tenure job. Now you're doing a lot of work with with uh, kids in prison. Uh, I was when I when I, I I retired. My last full year in teaching was 2005, and so the summer between 2005 and 2006. I got a sub job at Montview Youth Detention Center. And then the next year, when I was retired, stopped teaching. And I spent the next year subbing at that same prison school. Mm. And boy, you talk about, that was my best bunch of teachers, my, my best bunch of uh, students. What is that? They, number one, they appreciated somebody who looked like them. They were black and they were Hispanic. Um, a lot of kids were very wealthy white kids. Mm. And when when they got sent to prison, their kid, their their parents uh, refinanced their homes to try and bail them out. Uh, so it was a mixed bunch of kids. But they were in difficult circumstances. My message to them basically was, look, I grew up in an institution. Would you like to get out of this institution and never come back? Then listen to what I'm teaching. They were effective teaching. No joke, Dave. I was able to teach them at college level. They were 13, 14, and 15 years old. On average, and I was teaching on college levels. That's it's one thing I always remember about you. You always teach based on meritocracy. Yeah, and meritocracy, and it was always going to be excellence. And you, it didn't matter if you were low level. We're going to get you up to a higher level. Yeah, brilliant. But the people did that for me down at Metro State College. Mm. See. You walked in, I flunked out of DU, walked into Metro State, and after one quarter, the lady, the white lady, old Philadelphia money, if you remember what that means, Mm -hmm. she was wealthy. Old Philadelphia money, at the end of the first quarter, in in a class called Medieval History, she says, all right, now, Let's get you ready for graduate school. (laughs) Awesome. And, you know, halfway through the quarter, she did a midterm. And then, you know, we had to write the midterm. You had to do some writing for the midterm. And she comes back 
the following Monday or the following Wednesday or whatever it was. And she had a voice that could freeze the blood of a Marine drill sergeant. And she, she barks at me and she says, I can tell you went to a Catholic school. <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> I said, yeah, but how can you tell? You're, you're the only one in the damn class who could write. <laughs> <laughs> calls me and calls me into her office and says, "All right, now let's get you ready for graduate school." That's great. <laughs> Just, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, so I'm, I'm doing the same thing to you guys that she and all the professors at Metro State did to me. Mm-hmm. Let's get you ready for graduate school. Went back to DU, got my master's degree in English. So there's a whole bunch of people. There's a whole bunch of people like that here in America who still believe in what we truly call the revolution of the American dream. Mm. Yeah. And long before Dr. Martin Luther King did anything, long before Malcolm X, they were saying, let's get you ready for graduate school. And that's how I got away with it. Mm. One of the frustrations is that it just feels that the American dream is dying. And, and it's, and the world that I grew up in, it was always, again, that, that it didn't matter who you were. As long as you went and you worked and you found your talent, you could raise yourself to any standard. And now there seems to be people, individuals, and systems that just keep on pushing down. And, and there, we don't want to bring everybody else up. And uh, it's just it's quite a shame, I think, in that. Well... Me estudiante. <laughs> Three questions for you. I ask everybody. What's one book you recommend that everybody should read? Oh, that's a hard one. Dave, that's a hard one. Um, oof. Um, you talking to English speakers? Get a volume of Abraham Lincoln's uh, speeches and letters. That's great. That is... Abraham Lincoln was the Charles Dickens of American English. And you made us memorize Gettysburg Address and stand up in front of the class and recite it. And the language is absolutely elevated and beautiful and very, very simple. What Number two, what did your favorite lunch? Ooh, my favorite lunch is with a friend, a close friend like you. Mm. We've had a few. Um. And it's filet mignon. Great. Glass, glass of Chardonnay. Any place in Denver you'd recommend? <laughs> They're all closed down. <laughs> well, that's right. this Welcome to the pandemic world. What do you think this is? Pandemic? <laughs> you have to cook at home. We'll come over to your house for a, a filet mignon. I'll bring a, I'll bring a bottle of Chardonnay for you. Did, did we ever go together to a place called Elway's? No, it wasn't probably around when I was there. No, it wasn't. Because, he was still a football player uh, back in the day. Yeah, back that's and he founded a couple of he founded a couple of good businesses. Unlike other football players of the day, he got some good business. And boy, he is without any money from the NFL. This guy is wealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. If that ever opens up again and you come back 
to town. I'll take you there. I look forward to that. And if you could invite anyone to lunch, living or dead, who would you go and have a lunch with? I would have a serious sit-down filet mignon lunch with our present Pope, really? Francis the First. Francis. Wow. That, that is a man I'd love to... Boy, I'll tell you again, the people who are going to turn our world around, I believe, are the religious leaders. Mm. I think the other person I'd sit down with is Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. I would I would sit down with the former Secretary General of the United Nations, Dag Hammarskjöld. Um, I would sit down with, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this movie, uh, The Two Popes. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but I've, I've yeah, I've seen it. I've, uh... Pope Benedict and Pope, yeah, yeah, Pope Benedict and Pope Francis. I would, I'd go down to Castel Gandolfo uh, with both of them, and I would have it catered by Elways. <laughs> Today, I would sit down with the two popes. That's great. Good answers. Well, thank you, Craig. It's been wonderful to to speak. Been a, a very, very long time since we've done that. Thanks so much. This brings us to the end of our episode. Thank you so much for being a listener. The Barefoot Lunch podcast is released on the 1st and 15th of the month and can be found on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. If you like what you've heard, please leave a rating and a nice comment. And thank you. Our original music was composed and performed for the Barefoot Lunch podcast by Sweeney Davis.